In this week's episode of the Keep Growing Podcast, we head to one of my favorite places, the forest. Here in Appalachia, we live in an environment that was literally terraformed. Just like a science fiction book, the original alien landscape was slowly changed over the course of a few hundred years into the landscape we have today. We might say that West Virginia is almost heaven, but that was built on the ashes of Eden. I've always been interested in studying history, and in West Virginia, we have a rich history that holds many secrets and stories. On my mom's side of the family, I'm a descendant of the Lewis family. Perhaps you've heard of Andrew Lewis who fought at the Battle of Point Pleasant. Well, his brother John Lewis was my 8th great-grandfather. Their father immigrated from Donegal, Ireland in 1732 and settled in Augusta County, Virginia. My ancestors then later moved west across the mountains to Greenbrier County, Virginia later West Virginia, to the area known as Lewisburg. I say this to create a mental image. If you look at pictures of Donegal, Ireland, you'll be surprised to see the striking similarities with our own region. Rolling hills, pastures, and beautiful farmland dot the landscape. My initial thought was, my ancestors moved from Ireland to Ireland? However, that really isn't the case. They created their homeland here by transforming the entire ecosystem. Early settlers to the area would have been presented with a wild, primeval landscape that was just as alien to them as it is to us today. Trees towering hundreds of feet into the air with a canopy so thick, one could barely see the sky. These trees were absolutely massive. On November 4th, 1770, while traveling along the Kanawha River, George Washington himself wrote in his journal. I'm going to try to do my best George Washington impression here. Anyhow, he said, Just as we came to the hills, we met with a sycamore of most extraordinary size. It measuring three feet from the ground, 45 feet round, lacking two inches, and not 50 yards from it was another 31 feet round. Yeah, maybe I need to work on my impressions. I don't know. The forest floor was covered in decomposing plant matter. This humus was feet thick in some places and covered with mosses, ferns, and many other types of plants. In many areas, it was as dangerous as quicksand. And in others, thick undergrowth created nearly impenetrable walls. Legend has it that Cheat Mountain got its name by cheating settlers looking for a shortcut over the mountains out of their lives. On stormy summer days, temperatures on the mountain can easily go from a sweltering 80 degrees to a wet and windy 40 degrees in a matter of minutes. 
People just simply died of exposure. At first, the transformation of the Appalachian region was slow. Settlers would girdle trees to kill them, and then they would be cut down to build cabins, fences, or burned as firewood. In many cases, they were just clearing a few acres and valleys for farmland. Then, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, more land started to be cleared to build early forts, and then towns as more settlers arrived. Skip ahead a few decades until after the Civil War, West Virginia, it's a state now, and the Industrial Revolution is taking place. The U.S. needs tons of raw materials for building homes, laying railroad tracks, building ships, making paper, and hundreds of other uses. This is when logging in the state becomes industrialized. During the 40-year heyday of large-scale logging in West Virginia, the bandsaw mill was king. Each bandsaw mill required about 15 acres per day of West Virginia virgin timber to keep just one mill filled with a steady flow of logs. In 1909, at the peak of lumber operations, there were 83 bandsaw mills running in the state. Nearly 1.5 billion board feet of lumber were produced just that year alone. The estimated amount of lumber cut in West Virginia by logging is absolutely staggering. The total lumber cut in West Virginia between 1870 and 1920 was more than 30 billion board feet. With this amount of lumber, we could build a walkway 10 feet wide and 2 inches thick to the moon. Amazingly, two areas in West Virginia were spared, so you could still get a tiny glimpse of the truly wild and wonderful forests of old. The first area is Cathedral State Park. The park is home to an ancient hemlock grove of gigantic proportions. Trees up to 100 feet tall and 20 feet in diameter form groups in the park. However, the park is just 133 acres, but it can still give you a taste of what the majestic Allegheny Forest must have looked like 300 years ago. The second area of virgin forest in the state is the Monongahela National Forest's Gaudenier Knob Scenic Area. The story of how this area was accidentally saved is pretty interesting. Essentially, prior to the Civil War, a speculating land company bought about 70,000 acres on the slope of Shavers Mountain. Their tract was about seven miles long, going north to south along the east side of the mountain. When the surveyor mapped the land, he failed to account for the variation between magnetic north versus true north on the map. Measuring from south to north, this caused a four degree error in his measurements. Multiply that error over seven miles, and you now have a V-shaped swath of land that contains around 900 acres. 
On future surveys, the owners just thought that area belonged to neighboring landowners, and so it was spared. Sadly, some of the area was eventually logged, and other areas were claimed by fire. Now just 130 acres of virgin spruce remain. So think of that. Out of over 16 million acres of original forests in West Virginia, only around 260 acres are standing today. So the next time you go for a walk in the woods, keep in mind that that forest you're in is most likely only around 100 years old. I had mentioned before that our ancestors artificially created the Irish countryside-like appearance of the state we see today. For the most part, that's true. They imported grass seeds to grow pastures, farm animals, and the farming techniques of the old country. Also, over time, plants from the prairies of the west migrated into the region. Yes, plants can migrate. They just move really slowly. Carried by migrating animals, the wind, and other means, you see the appearance of prairie plants like ironweed, milkweed, black-eyed Susan, and many others. However, leave an area of West Virginia to its own devices, and as if by instinct, the land will once again become forest. It might take decades, but it will happen. Today, armed with the knowledge of proper forest management, we're possibly looking at the reemergence of the timber industry in West Virginia. There are currently millions of acres of timber in the state ready to be harvested. However, there's more than just timber. There's a whole host of other plants in Appalachia that are important for food and medicine. That's where forest farming comes in. Forest farming is a type of agroforestry in which beneficial plants are grown among the trees of the forest. This type of farming has many benefits, including increased biodiversity, improved soil health, and the ability to produce multiple types of crops at once. One of the main advantages of forest farming is the increased biodiversity it brings to the ecosystem. When different types of plants are grown together, they create a diverse environment that supports a wide range of wildlife. This helps maintain a healthy ecosystem and can even help control pests and diseases. Last week, we took a look at turning your own landscape into a certified wildlife habitat. What if you were to do a similar thing, but on a massive scale, and then use it as a learning tool for forest farmers? That's exactly what our friends at United Plant Savers have done. Just a 20-minute drive from our headquarters here at Bob's Market, is United Plant Savers, a sanctuary for medicinal plants in Appalachia. A while back, I got to sit down with them and learn about what they're doing to help protect native plants and teach about how to manage these important resources. So, first off, you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, totally. 
Um, so my name's Katie Patterson and I grew up here in Meigs County uh, in Racine and uh, I work here at United Plant Savers as the program manager and so I oversee kind of the daily operations here on site at United Plant Savers um, and then I oversee the programs that we have such as like our uh, artist and residency program, our botanical sanctuary network program, uh, we have an internship program where people come so um, I'm here in the office, answer phones, just kind of greet people and, and do a lot of that, the, the daily ins and outs of keeping the business going. Mm. Yeah, and my name is Jules, um, or Julie Scott is my proper <laughs> mother-given name. But um, I grew up in D.C. and I live in Athens at the moment and okay. have been helping here for since last summer. Um, and I just help everything keep going, keep the wheels turning. I assist Katie with most of what she does and, you know, we all wear a lot of hats around here, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, what is United Plant Savers? Yeah, great question. <laughs> great question. Um, so United Plant Savers is a 501c3 nonprofit and we were started in 1994 by a group of herbalists who were realizing that a lot of the plants that they had been using for years and that were popular in commerce um, were the populations have been diminishing in the wild and so they all got together and came up with the idea to protect these native medicinal plants and so they started United Plant Savers and it was actually started on this land here uh, in Rutland Ohio um, this is our botanical sanctuary, so that basically means this is a piece of land that's set aside to just be a sanctuary for these plants to live. Um, we're not necessarily digging them, we're not, um, you know, trying to sell them, we're literally just setting this piece of land aside. There's about 400 acres here, and it's basically just a repository to be able to propagate plants, plant them just for people to come and see them in their natural habitat, for us to educate people um, about why it's important to protect these plants. And I also think that um, this land and this botanical sanctuary specifically honors the just kind of ancestral connection with Appalachia and a lot of these plants. Um, so, you know, ginseng, a lot of people's granddads dug ginseng or their great granddads and made a living. And maybe that's how they got through part of the year was, you know, digging ginseng. So um, I think it's really cool to have those ancestral ties, especially in Appalachia here to these plants. Um, but also over harvesting has led to them now being at risk. And so part of what United Plant Savers does is that we have an at risk list. And so our board of directors and our at risk list committee they meet, um, I think about every other year, and they sit down and they have like a scoring system where they go through each plant and they talk about ginseng and they say, okay, you know, and are you seeing it? You know, what, what's the cost? What, what populations are left? What's the demand? What's the supply? And they go through everything. And so they have this list where they score the plants. And so we have an at-risk list um, that's published every year in our journal and it's on our website. And so that's kind of our basis for what we're doing is, is this list of plants that's at risk. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of things going on, but in a mm -hmm. nutshell, that's kind of our, our you know, bread and yep. butter is just saving these medicinal plants, educating people about it, and providing the space for them to be able to live in sanctuary and for people to come and see them in the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, instead of creating like a seed bank, yeah. I mean, this is serving as... Yes. 
<laughs> kind of a natural seed bank. Exactly. Yeah, like a living seed bank. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of the native forest plants that we have here are difficult to start from seed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they're not. Yeah. It's not just oh, pop them in the greenhouse. You know, yeah. halfway through the summer you forgot and just stick them in your garden. Mm-hmm. There's knowledge and you know puzzles to the pieces to the puzzle that really help them thrive. And a lot of them are so slow growing and they take years to yeah. put out seeds. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm really grateful that we have so many people in the community that hold some of that knowledge and it feels really good to be able to share that with, with people who are willing to listen and learn. <laughs> we were talking about ginseng and mm-hmm. over harvesting of it. Um, do you cover like, for people that do harvest ginseng, do you cover like managing areas or plots that they have? Sure. Uh, yeah. Kind of proper conservation sure. of those areas? Yeah. So, um, you know, more recently there's come out the term forest farming mm-hmm. and it's growing in popularity. And last year and uh, upcoming this end of the month here in June, uh, we're going to have another forest farming conference. And so that's when we invite people to come out here and we teach them all about forest farming strategies and how they can manage their wild stands of ginseng or their cultivated stands of ginseng. And that helps to take the pressure off of a lot of the wild ginseng that exists out there. So our hope is that, you know, if, um, you know, someone who lives a farm over from here grows two acres of ginseng, then that pressure will be taken off of two acres of ginseng that exist on national forest land or Mm -hmm. national park land. Um, And then that ginseng that was cultivated specifically to be sold can be, you know, what, what is dug. Um, and we actually have a program that we run called the Forest Grown Verification Program, uh, or FGV. And so these are people who, you know, say Bob's Market has some, some farmland uh, that's forested. They wanted to start growing some ginseng. Um, you could get Forest Grown Verified, which means that certain buyers are only buying forest grown verified to keep poachers from mm-hmm. selling basically you know if, you, if you're poaching yeah. and then you sell it but you're not forest grown verified they're not going to buy it from you yeah. so it's kind of a protection program that's going into place to try to keep buyers from buying poached ginseng mm-hmm. um, so you all would be able to get you know verified yeah. as forest grown verified and then uh, you know buyers would be able to buy your ginseng so we're kind of trying to put some barriers in place like that um, and we try to educate people. I think poaching's always going to happen, you know, especially with the the demand and the value on ginseng root. Um, but I do hope that through forest farming, we're able to at least reduce some of the pressure from these wild stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, poaching—that's a term that most people, I think, associate with animals, but it that's does true. happen that's with true. plants. So. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we've noticed um, since the start of the pandemic. Um, golden seal has started to be poached even more uh, prominently mm-hmm. and um, golden seal does have a lower monetary value than ginseng does but medicinally it's you know arguably just as high mm-hmm. um, and really special to this area a lot of old-timers call it yellow root um, and it's actually the plant that formed United Plant Savers. There's a giant stand of golden seal here um, on our land that was called Hydrastus Heaven because the the genus name for golden seal is Hydrastus. Mm -hmm. And um, we've noticed a lot of 
golden seal being poached around here. And, yeah. You know, the price is going up on it. And um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of, it changes with the demand of what people are poaching. And, and seems like they're not worried about just pulling up on someone's land and, you know, digging yeah. stuff out. Ramps mm -hmm. get poached pretty often, yeah. especially from state parks and national forests and places where uh, people don't think that someone's going to catch them. But ramps are definitely a big one as well that mm -hmm. people are poaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, ginseng and mm -hmm. uh, gold seal. What are some of the other types of medicinal plants that? Sure. Yeah. So we focus mostly on forest botanicals. Okay. Um, so these are plants that exist naturally here in Appalachia, like in this eastern deciduous forest. Mm -hmm. um, we do also focus some on prairie plants and you know wild natives that that grow even in ditches and things around here. Um, but mostly we focus on the forest medicinals. And so um, some of the big ones are ginseng, golden seal, ramps, um, slippery elm trees, because trees also count as medicinal mm -hmm. plants. <laughs> um, uh, blue cohosh and black cohosh, bloodroot. Um, yeah, there's all, all kinds. Ginger. Yeah, <laughs> wild ginger. Yep. We have oh, a lot man. of rare, really special native orchids. Um, there's so many special plants and, and some of them like ginseng or golden seal are still used in modern day for specific medicinal uses. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these plants have a long, long history of being used medicinally, medicinally and we don't use that in modern day because there's yeah. more easily accessible alternatives. Yeah. So you could use bloodroot for a number of things, but should you? Probably not because the, the pressures on the plant are so high and yeah. there's other alternatives. But, you know, indigenous people that lived here for thousands of years use these plants in a, in a way that we, we might not now. But mm -hmm. um, they're yeah. still really, really special and unique to this region. So, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yep. Yeah. Um, here on site, you also have a library. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it's not only a repository for plants, it's also kind of a repository for knowledge. Um, totally, yeah. So you want to talk a little bit about kind of that aspect of it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So as you mentioned, we do have a library on site. Um, so our new welcome center that we're sitting in now, um, it's also called the Center for Medicinal Plant Conservation. And in 2019, it was dedicated to uh, Dr. James Duke and his mm -hmm. wife, Peggy Duke. And uh, Dr. Jim Duke worked for the FDA. He did phytochemical analysis of plants. He traveled all over the world. And um, he uh, owns the Green Pharmacy or owned the Green Pharmacy in Maryland. Uh, which served as this like beautiful garden space and learning center for people to come. And um, he wrote several books, including Herb a Day and the book called The Green Pharmacy and several others. And uh, so we, when, upon his passing, we were gifted his library, his personal library, mm -hmm. along with all of his filing cabinets, with all of his research work. Um, you know, personal documents, pictures, um, some of Peggy's original illustrations. She, she illustrated books while he did a lot of the, you know, research and, and information for mm -hmm. them. So together they made these beautiful plant guides and uh, it's just, it's phenomenal. So yeah, our space now serves as more than just coming to see the plants, but also people coming to do research on plants. And um, 
last year at the end of 2021, we did a fundraiser, fundraising campaign uh, for archiving uh, what we're calling the Duke Ethnobotanical Archives. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the, the whole gamut of the books, the pictures, the photos, um, the research paperwork, just kind of everything. We have a whole bunch of slides, like old picture slides of all the plants that he, you know, visited and seen. And um, so we actually have a, a fellow here right now who's working on archiving all of that and digitizing it. And so we're hoping to be able to make that public on our website for everyone to be able to see thanks to all the, the kind donors <laughs> who donated to that campaign. Yeah. It's yeah. a treasure trove of knowledge and wisdom. And I think it's really neat because so many of those books are out of print mm -hmm. or just so, you know, even if you're an um, enthusiastic plant lover, herbalist who's doing some deep dives, a lot of those books you would never get your hands on. So it's yeah. really, really special to to um, have that in one space where people can come and, and see that. And we just want to preserve that. and. Um, Susan Leopold, our director, is really, really a bibliophile, and so not only do we have um, Jim Duke's collection here, but she has recently purchased two other um, <laughs> massive collections of amazing herbal books from professors and, yep. and whatnot. So as those are becoming available, we're trying to preserve and, and keep those in temperature-controlled spaces and yep. make sure that um, they're in good hands. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so this place that serves not only as a repository for plants, a repository for knowledge, it's also an education center. So yeah. mm -hmm. uh, sure. people can come here and learn and also there's trails here. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. for... Yeah, definitely. Right. So yeah, we also have a bit of that recreation aspect as well yeah. in that, you know, um kind of like visiting and touring and that whole aspect. So um, we have about eight miles of hiking trails here. And uh, those were mostly developed by Paul Strauss, who was one of our founding members, uh, along with several groups of interns over the past 20 or so years, um, building this trail system through the woods here. And uh, our most popular trail is the Medicine Trail. And um, most of our trails have signs all along um, the trail that call out the plants with their genus and species name as well. Um, so it's really nice. It's, it serves as this like, you know, even if you're just out on a walk by yourself and you don't know the plants, you can still look and see the name of the plant, take a picture of it, come back, look it up, look at it, add it in our library mm -hmm. here. Um, so it kind of, yeah, creates this more holistic experience, I yep. think, than just going on a regular walk in the woods, you're still gonna get gain a lot from that. Mm. Um, but to be able to take it that step further and have that deeper educational aspect to it, I think is really wonderful. And we're always improving upon that. Um, we use slate signs that were uh, upcycled from an old barn roof that was here. Um, and you know, slate has its challenges. It, mm -hmm. it cracks and it fades. And um, so, you know, we're, we're ever evolving and trying to get our environmental education um, program, you know, make it better and better. And that's something that I'm really focusing on and, and enjoy doing, bringing school groups out here. Um, and yeah, we try to get them out on the trails and just, you know, get them involved. And I think um, one of the best things that I learned in, in school was provocation is one of the best things that you can do, especially for children and, you know, to get them interested in 
learning about plants is just to provoke something exciting inside of them. Mm. You know, just make a connection or make, you know, if, if they walk out of here after a whole day in the woods and they say, hey, I know jewel weed because I got stung by a stinging nettle yeah. <laughs> and it hurt really bad and they showed me what jewelweed was and I recognized the orange flower and they'll forever know that. And if that's right. all that they learned and the rest of the time they acted like they hated the hike <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or they hated getting stung by the stinging nettle, um, you know, I, I feel like we still had provoked something within yeah. them. They still had that experience, that connection to where, um, you know, they're like, oh wow, this works. Right. This is cool. The revelation, and, you can eat that, that chicken yes, or the yes. dandelion for whatever. And they're like driving in their car. Oh, I see that. I can eat the autumn olive. We can make mm -hmm. jam from that. Those, yeah. Those things help you feel rooted to a place and feel a deeper connection. And when, when people feel a deeper connection to the land they're on or the space they're in, you know, oftentimes the hope or the wish is that they feel some responsibility and want mm -hmm. to take care of it and pay attention and um, be a good steward to the land. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. So yeah, I think the trail system, the environmental education system here, like all of that helps to just, yeah, make people want to care more about these medicinal plants and, yep. and why it's important to save them. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's, it's exciting because we get a range of people, some, some who visit are very well versed and know exactly what they might see mm -hmm. and are, are delighted and others who show up might not recognize the clover, you know, that mm -hmm. grows in, in the lawn. So it's really wonderful to have a space where everyone could feel welcome and you know we can meet people where they are and everyone can enjoy it so that's mm -hmm. that's wonderful yep yeah so how can people learn more and come out and visit and take sure. a tour yeah that's a great question um so we have a wonderful website. I know not everybody has internet or access to high-speed internet, but if you do, um, I highly suggest getting on our website. It's just unitedplantsavers.org. And we have a whole page on there about visiting the sanctuary and what that looks like. And you can fill out a form saying, you know, what you're interested in coming to visit for, um, you know, the purpose of your visit, if you're just wanting to come and hike around, or if you want a guided hike, or if you want to host an event here. So whatever that looks like for you, you can get on the website and fill that out and request. Um, you can come and just, you know, call us, um, stop by. All that information is also on the website. Um, we could also maybe put it in a description of the, the video or something mm -hmm. as well. Maybe put some of that information okay. in there. Um, you can email me. Uh, again, my name's Katie, and my email is manager at unitedplantsavers.org. And um, email is a great way to get a hold of us. Um, and yeah, we just invite people to come out. Uh, you know, we're usually here like regular business hours, Monday through Friday, about nine to five. And, uh, you know, just stop out and visit the site, uh, come and hike the trails, swim in the pond, um, just really enjoy, you know, Appalachian summer or fall or winter or whatever season you want to visit <laughs> in because it all looks different, yeah. different plants out at every time. Um, our spring wildflowers here are phenomenal. They are really the unsung heroes um, of this area. And I feel like, you know, surprisingly, there weren't that many people who came out for our spring wildflowers this year to come and see them. So yeah, uh, I would suggest for next year, you know, around April, May, yeah. for people to come out here and, and come and hike and see those. They're really special, like forest wildflowers. And I mm -hmm. feel like a lot of people don't think about 
that in the spring of like going out in the forest to see special wildflowers, but they're out there. Um, so yeah, uh, we're out here in Rutland, Ohio. So if anyone's in the, the general area, we get people who come in from, you know, Athens, Point Pleasant, Galpolis, um, yeah, the Mason area, uh, Ravenswood area. But occasionally we'll have someone from Colorado or yeah. people will come a long way mm-hmm. to visit. People do. Yeah. yeah, you're not wrong. We have a map up in the yurt um, and we've been starting to track where people are from. And we literally, within like six months, have people from all the way on the East Coast, all the way on the West Coast. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> California, Oregon to Maine and Georgia. and You know, it's just really crazy to see um, the array of people who've heard about us over the years and who want to come and visit. So yeah. it's, it's really cool. It always surprises me being from Meigs County and growing up here after the fall of the coal mines and the fall of, you know, mm-hmm. all of the industry that was here in the 90s. It was not a whole lot going on, yeah. you know, and I always grew up thinking there's not really a whole lot here. Not not much to be proud of, I felt like. Mm-hmm. And um, I moved away for a little while, went to school, and then I moved back here. And I now have a completely different perspective. And especially after working out here and getting this connection with the plants and then specifically seeing people coming all the way from Colorado and Oregon just to see this place yeah. really blows my mind. And that's been very humbling for me and made me a lot more proud of this area and being from here because I'm like, wow, there's stuff here that people want to come all the way from Colorado to see. (laughs) Like we go to Colorado to see the Rocky Mountains and to see the beautiful things there, but there are people who want to come here Mm -hmm. and see what we have in Appalachia because it is that special. And I feel like we don't talk about that that much about how special these plants are. Um, The beautiful rolling hills here just create these perfect little microclimates Mm -hmm. for these special plants that only grow in very, very, um, specific areas so it's it's really wonderful yeah as an outsider i visited a my uncle lives in athens and i visited him seven years ago in in april and may mm-hmm. and i felt the magic of the hills and never wanted to leave and yeah. i rearranged my life so that i could move here and live here and it has always struck me there are people like katie and and friends of mine and locals who are so grateful to be here and so proud. There are also a lot of people that don't see the beauty that's right in front of them or um, just can't get to, to, can't wait to get away. And I'm here like, you guys, this is, you know, (laughs) as special as it gets. And so it's a hope of mine. And I know Katie, you feel the same of, of helping people feel connected to the land, proud of the land, to see the abundance that is in these hills. And um, I don't know. I, I think it's one of the more magical places I've ever been in, in my yeah. life. And I, I hope the people that actually live here feel the same way mm. more and more. Yeah. So. yeah. Also, you can find us on Instagram and Ooh. Facebook. Forgot to plug the socials. Oh, yeah. yep. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we do like Instagram a lot. Yes. We post on there fairly often. So... Um, that's always a fun platform, I think, to reach people on. Yeah. 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 Thanks again to United Plant Savers for sharing with us. If you live in the area, I recommend going over and checking them out and taking in the hiking trails. 
The day I was there, it was like a bazillion degrees outside, so I didn't get to spend as much time as I would have liked outside on the trails. But I did take along a couple of my film cameras because I love doing nature photography. So if you check out the show notes for this episode, I have included my photos from that day. Next time on the Keep Growing Podcast, we're going to start gearing up for the upcoming gardening season. Specifically, ways to stay organized in the garden. From gardening journals to apps and other tricks, we're going to talk about some of the techniques to help you organize your ideas, keep notes, and grow as a gardener. Remember, you can find out more about the Keep Growing podcast at bobsmarket.com slash keepgrowing. You can also reach out to me with your gardening questions and comments at keepgrowing at bobsmarket.com. I really love your input. Until next time, keep growing. Copyright 2023, Bob's Market and Greenhouses, Incorporated.